regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold a long-form in-depth conversation with our practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Namdi Irapule, a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. He's a self-taught programmer and lifelong technology nerd. His mission is to increase total software output by supporting entrepreneurs building technical tools for technical people. He focuses on investment in technical enterprise software, such as developer tools, application infrastructure, and machine learning. So Namdi, it is my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, James. Glad to be here. Fabulous. Why doing the homework for our conversation? I believe that you are a first-generation Nigerian immigrant born and raised in Los Angeles. And uh, on your website, you said that as a teenager, you spent countless hours building computers, coding up websites, and finding ways to game Google search. Can you share a bit about these formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, happy to. So for additional context, yeah, as you mentioned, son of two Nigerian immigrants, and I was the firstborn son. And in that situation, all the hopes and dreams of the family tend to be poured into you. And especially amongst the sort of cohort of Nigerians that left Nigeria to go to other countries, US, UK, et cetera, education is super important. And then as a career profession, medicine is like the thing to do. And so for most of my young life, I sort of thought, or at least told people that I was going to be a doctor. But in the back of my mind, I was always sort of questioning that assumption and questioning that idea, whether or not it was the best thing for me. And so on some level, my tinkering and exploring with technology as a young kid was my attempt to find alternative ways of living my life and you know, fell in love with technology at a very early age, mostly via sort of tinkering with websites. I learned how to build websites, a lot of WordPress sites. Actually, I learned how to modify video games. I built computers, desktop computers that I would then use to play those games. <laughs> And then, you know, I also sort of parlayed some of this tinkering and coding with entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I've always been a very independent person and always felt that in the grand scheme of things, working for myself, even if on paper, I'm working for somebody else, I was always going to be working for myself in real talk. And so tried to make money with these different websites that I would build. And that's where the gaming of Google search came in. So I would write websites around certain topics that I knew were high paying keywords within Google AdWords or where there were products that I could sort of recommend and earn a commission via, you know, affiliate marketing and whatnot. And so I built these websites oftentimes about topics that I knew nothing about, like foreign exchange trading and like dog training. I've never owned a dog, Um, never traded Forex, but these were like high paying keywords. Cheap hardwood flooring was my number one performing site, actually. Um, I've never, uh, I've never modeled a, a home before, but, and I'll get these checks in the mail from Google AdSense. Like I think the minimum payout was a hundred dollars. So I get these hundred dollar checks in the mail from Google and my parents would wonder why Google was sending me money in the mail, which was kind of funny. 
but I, I knew it was important for me to experiment with these sort of alternative means of building a life. And so that was kind of the spark of a lot of things that come since then. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing those anecdotes and the story of how I grew up. And this is, I believe, like the early 2000s or the 90s. Yeah. Sort of late, late uh, 90s, early okay. 2000s. Yeah. So it's very like the dot-com boom and yes. that, that era. Yes, I wasn't I wasn't conscious at the time that the dot-com boom was even happening, but I was certainly using a lot of the products and websites that no longer exist that came out of that period for sure. You know, like web 1.0 and like and then web 2.0 came later. People remember those ideas. You know, I was definitely involved in a lot of that. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context. And so you mentioned that, you know, growing up, you're very focused on technology and programming. But then for college, you earned your undergrad degree in economics from Yale University. And I believe this is during 2013. And one college, you also interned as a summer analyst at McKinsey and JP Morgan. My question is twofold. First, how would you describe your overall undergrad experience at Yale? And second, what were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from some of your summer internship? I had a really good time at Yale. I wasn't sure that I was going to like it. I had actually wanted to go to Stanford, and that had been my dream school for undergrad and long story short got into both schools but Yale was offering a somewhat better financial aid package which was important to my family and my parents being you know crazy Nigerian parents felt that Yale was Ivy League and Stanford technically wasn't so I had a leg up in Stanford and so I ended up going to Yale really not being sure how much I would like it and having never spent any time on the east coast of the United States I grew up in Los Angeles But I ended up being very surprised. I, I had a great time there. It was a great community, great social scene. I developed a lot as a person. I got really lucky with who I got paired up with in terms of roommates and whatnot. So, you know, really uh, had an amazing time there. Um, as you mentioned, ended up studying economics, in part because I knew that I didn't necessarily literally want to work as a software engineer. And this was around the time of when I got to Yale, We were just coming out of the financial crisis, and that was very top of mind for me and very interesting to me. And economics felt like the best way to explore that topic. Economics also was the most obviously employable degree. And so for a set of those factors, I ended up majoring in that. And then as one does in a lot of these Ivy League schools, you end up being pulled into consulting and investment banking, and those are considered the things to do. And you don't really know any better, so you go off and you know, try out those things. You know, I also had a mostly good experience. You know, I interned at McKinsey, I interned at JP Morgan, and I ended up spending a year post-graduation at, at JP Morgan. There was like valuable lessons that I learned from those experiences. I think one that I've had to kind of like revisit over time is sort of like, no one is going to be looking out for you more than you. And so, you know, don't assume that just because you work with somebody that they're going to be your best pal or they're going to have your best interests in mind. And don't assume that they're inside your head either. You know, when you show up in an internship in an organization, like they don't know anything about you other than like, well, you got through our interview process, but you have to really step up and kind of like show your worth and show that you're a competent professional that they should put place their trust in. If they have any reason to doubt that, then you're not going to have a fun time, even if you might otherwise be an amazing person and, and what have you. And as they say, like first impressions really matter. And so, I took some learnings around that from my McKinsey internship to JP Morgan mm -hmm. and just like, was like, just like crushed the internship, I guess is the best way of putting it. And then, you know, got the full-time offer and I was off to the races. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context a little bit about the time at Yale and your learnings during this internship. 
you just mentioned that you know after finishing Yale, you get that full time job at JP Morgan, and I believe that you spent about one year working for the technology, media, and telecommunication investment banking group in the New York office, advising clients like Comcast and EMC. Uh, so during that one year, what do you say to be some of your like biggest learning? You know, I think one of my biggest learnings, you know, during my time at JP Morgan was just like watching the, I would say almost a decline of an industry and how things that seemed cool or seemed like the best jobs or seemed prestigious or seemed whatever five to 10 years ago, you know, it turns out a lot can change in five to 10 years. In the case of investment banking, this is in particular to JP Morgan, I would say this is true the industry in general. It's had its ups and downs for sure. And, you know, had had a big down, no surprise, part of the financial crisis. And as a result, the job post-financial crisis is just very different in a lot of ways from the job pre-financial crisis. But people's sort of viewpoints of the job are very sort of backdated to like a different era. And that played itself out in all sorts of ways. It played itself out from like a compensation standpoint. It played itself out from a retention standpoint. Like these banks tended to think that they are offering this super prestigious job and everyone in the world would want this. But with the rise of technology, you started seeing a ton of the technology industry in Silicon Valley. You started seeing a ton of analysts, you know, leave their programs after, you know, less than the two-year stint that it usually is. And so a lot of the banks have had to like reform their strategies for retention and for hiring in order to sort of counteract the tech threat. The industry is set up in a way where you earn fees for these transactions that you do. And these fees are constantly under pressure, given that there's nothing that says that any given fee level is the right fee level. And if someone can undercut you, then there's sort of a race to the bottom. And I think, you, I think you've seen that within banking. You know, I could go on, but it's it's sort of like, it was like my first taste of like, hey, some industries change over time and it's not as sexy always as their past reputation. And so, you know, just because some boomer tells you something doesn't mean it's true and i've had that repeat itself over many other instances too but that was one of my biggest biggest learnings during my time there and again it's all in the context of having had a pretty uh, positive experience there yeah definitely so you mentioned you, you observed that decline of the whole investment banking industry and how things doesn't turn out be as expected right i'm curious for people currently working in investment banking who want to maybe switch them into technology, what are some of the like advice could you give for them to successfully make that transition? Yeah, I think it's, um, frankly, I think it comes down a lot to having a sincere interest in technology for its own sake, as opposed to treating it like another sort of thing that seems prestigious right now. So I'm going to go do that thing because a lot of my friends will think that I'm cool for doing it, which is, you know, partly why people get into consulting. It's partly why people get into investment banking, you know, what have you. In tech, I think people are very allergic to that notion and can kind of smell you from a mile away if you're just like another finance person trying to transition into tech or another consultant trying to transition into tech. And so um, at the same time, the skill sets of consultants, the skill sets of finance people are very highly valued. In tech, there aren't that many places where you could go learn those skills. And so you have that advantage, but realize that there's thousands of other people just like you who are also trying to figure out how to break into tech. And so you got to differentiate yourself. And I think showing true passion for technology, true passion for the product of whatever company you're interested in, uh, I think can, can really help in that department. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, I guess your childhood, building websites, 
gaming search and having that passion technology is really play a big factor here as you get out of finance and get into tech, I assume. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was almost like it, it didn't require me to say anything that wasn't true about myself. I mean, my true passion was technology. If anything, I was just revealing the truth as opposed to trying to like pull one over on folks. Like I was always a tech nerd and I was always kind of doing the finance thing as sort of a way to eventually get to the real heart of the matter, which was technology. And I always knew I was either going to be a tech investor or a tech or work in tech. And so I think I was able to make the case pretty well. It's just my, my very, very, very strong passion. Perfect. In 2014, you moved to San Francisco and you joined the investment team at Iconu Capital, where you deploy over $500 million into high growth technologies company. First of all, how did this opportunity come about? And second of all, and this is kind of allude to the previous answer, but what sort of motivated you to make a career transition from investment banking into venture investing? Yeah. So they reached out to me and, you know, they were a very new firm at the time. I honestly hadn't heard of them. Most people had not heard of them, but it seemed, you know, really interesting and a really differentiated opportunity. And as I mentioned, I knew I wanted to make the jump to, you know, actual technology investing and actually being, you know, in the Bay Area, in the heart of it. And so it made a lot of sense from those perspectives. In addition, as I was looking to make that transition, you know, one question came up of like, what stage is the best stage to get involved in? So, you know, within the investing context, you know, people typically think of the split between early stage investing and growth stage investing. We'll get into this more later, but today I'm an early stage investor. But when I was at Iconic, I was more of a growth stage investor. So, you know, the companies were a bit later stage, they had revenue, they've been, they're in scaling mode. And I thought that that was a nice kind of entry point to technology investing coming from a banking background because, you know, there's actual data and numbers to look at. <laughs> and I felt like I could be value additive in that way versus at the time I felt like early stage was sort of, it felt like this mystical thing. And it was like, I don't know how I'm going to be valuable when the, when the company is just two people, a PowerPoint presentation, you know, it's just, I just didn't think I was going to be valuable in that context just yet until I had more kind of knowledge and expertise. So I thought growth stage investing was a great place to sort of start. And yeah, that's kind of how it happened. So it sounds like some of the skill from investment banking are transferable to growth stage investing in VC in this context, right? Yeah, um, the corporate finance, classic, yeah, corporate finance skills for sure. Financial modeling, yeah, so I suppose. Iconic Capital, and you said that is a very new firm at the time? At the time, yes. Gotcha. I believe that you spent about four formative years at Iconic Capital. And in particular, you have sourced and collect some of the investment in a variety of companies, some of the leading B2B software companies like GitLab, Alteryx, and Fastly. Uh, reflecting on that period, what would you say to be some of your proudest accomplishment? A couple things. You know, it sounds trivial, but like learning to be a good investor in the first place, I felt like it was an accomplishment. I mean, one of the things I learned very quickly coming out of my investment banking program is that I really didn't know what I was talking about when it came to investing. It was you know, although those corporate finance skills came in handy in terms of doing analysis, like how to think about companies and how to think about what makes a good company versus a not so good company, a good investment versus a not so good investment. Those are all sort of relatively new concepts to me. And, you know, I had a pretty steep learning curve on my first you know year there, just picking up some of these concepts and ideas. And so that was just a big learning and personal accomplishment for me was getting, getting over that curve. Another thing was kind of finding my you could call it product market fit among technical founders and technical 
companies. You know, I'd always been a self-taught programmer, like I mentioned, and I've always been fascinated by tools that make the lives of developers easier. And I was one of the few people on the team who had that kind of disposition and pushed the team quite a bit to invest more in these areas, developer tools, open source, data infrastructure, data analytics, you know, what have you. And I developed a lot of sort of expertise around those topics, which culminated in some of those investments that you mentioned. And then speaking of investments, you know, I think in terms of accomplishments, you know, one that I would highlight is GitLab, which was a company that I chased for you know, many years while I was at Iconic. I had originally met Sid, the CEO over uh, Google Hangouts virtually. You know, the company is a fully remote company. It was like a really interesting meeting. I wasn't totally sure, like by the end of it, did he like me? Did he not like me? How well had this meeting gone? You know, Sid can sometimes be that way. And so, but we developed a relationship over time and I continue to stay close to the company and was just so impressed by everything that they were doing and the product velocity and the, the growth in the company. And that culminated... I think two years after I first met him in eventual investment that we led. That was something that I was super proud of and super excited about. I see. So it took like two years from Yeah, you. long time. <laughs> But it worked out. Yeah. And I just want to double click on that boy about GitLab because I do see you have given various talk at some of the conferences at GitLab as well. What about you know the company that so excited you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes to that, to that point around product velocity. So for context, GitLab had started off being essentially just a way to sort of self-host your own code as an alternative to GitHub that was still Git-based. And so it was code repository. And I think initially a lot of people didn't really understand why that was interesting. It's like, oh, well, GitHub already exists. Why do we need this? It seemed like a copycat. They both have Git in the name. <laughs> And our, our two syllables. So there's there was like a lot of uh, similarities, and people didn't totally get it initially. But there was a really strong desire for folks to have that sort of GitHub-like experience, code repository experience, but in a open source context. And so the funny thing about GitHub and GitLab, it's like GitHub is sort of like the closed source way to host open source code, and GitLab is kind of like the open source way of, of hosting closed source code. Which is sort of an interesting distinction between the two. And so that was actually their differentiation early on. It was like for people who want to internal hosting of code for your organization, your software development team, but where the tooling itself was open source. And then they expanded from there. They had this sort of idea of this dev software development lifecycle, and they wanted to build products in each of those different areas that were sort of increasingly adjacent to what they were doing at the core. And this also surprised a lot of people. A lot of people didn't think it made sense to be a full end-to-end platform, but Sid and the rest of the team were super ambitious about serving all parts of the, the development lifecycle. And so they kept landing in these different areas and building out product and building out expertise. And, you know, like the company has evolved to the point where, you know, they are, as a standalone company, I think the broadest, most in-depth product suite available to software developers today. That was why it was so exciting was how fast they were moving, how ambitious they were. And the opportunity to serve, you know, potentially all developers around the world is a very big market opportunity. Yeah, thanks for sharing those rationale. And, and I think GitLab is also very synonymous with the DevOps movement, which like a big team of the whole engineering community throughout the 2010s, right? And then another point that I'm quickly revisit and draw answer is you mentioned you spend the whole first year at Iconic just kind of level up, going over a big learning curve on on investing, you know, transitioning from finance. What have been some of the most useful resources? for you throughout your own learning journey? 
Yeah, I'm always bad about sort of like pointing people toward specific resources. You know, back then, things were a bit more Wild West in terms of the different ways that one could look at a business. Not all these things had been like standardized yet, like unit economics as like a concept and like LTV to CAC and some of this lifetime value to customer acquisition costs and some of these different things that you use to analyze a business, you know, cohort analysis, what have you. Different firms were using this, but it wasn't like the cat wasn't out of the bag. And so we were kind of innovating at the time in terms of using a lot of these different methodologies to understand these growth stage businesses. And we're mostly kind of like figuring this stuff out internally. And so we were all kind of learning from one another and analyses we would use on one deal, we'd replicate for another deal. You know, it's almost like a little laboratory. We were coming up with different innovations and then applying them to the, uh, the deals that were coming through. So that's how I learned. It was really kind of like trial by fire, to be honest, like learning on the job for sure. There was no book that I went and read to yeah. figure this stuff out. These days, a lot of these things are pretty widely available on the internet and this is not a secret anymore. So if you follow any VCs on Twitter or LinkedIn, they'll post about this stuff periodically. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. Kind of circling back to your career, you spent four years at Iconic and around 2018, you then go to business school at Stanford. You get your MBA there. And in fact, you also completed coursework in the CS department at Stanford, taking classes like CS231, CS224, which are two very popular machine learning classes in Stanford department. And then additionally, you also serve as the co-president and vice president of the venture capital and the technology clubs, respectively. So how did some of these initiatives affect your overall Stanford experience? Yeah, so part of the reason I was so excited to go to Stanford for business school was for similar reasons that I had been wanting to go there for undergrad, which is like being at the center of technology and innovation and Silicon Valley. And similar to what I mentioned about like finance people trying to break into tech and the importance of differentiating yourself and showing passion, you know, I definitely wanted to not just be another MBA student. I wanted to take advantage of all the different technology-related resources at the school. And as I mentioned, I've been a self-taught programmer for most of my life. It's always good to verify that you actually know what you're talking about when you're self-taught. And so taking these effectively master's level courses in computer science at Stanford was a good opportunity for me to sort of, you know, compete with the best of them and make sure I actually knew what I was talking about. And so, and in this additional context, you know, this was around the time of a lot of hype and excitement in AI and deep learning and, and machine learning. And CS231N is the kind of marquee computer vision deep learning class at Stanford. And then CS224N is the sort of marquee you know, NLP, a natural language processing uh, deep learning class. And so those are kind of the really most important two that I wanted to take. Ton of work, <laughs> you know, a lot more work than the typical MBA class. I think I was one of two MBAs to those classes, but you know, did well. I think I got an A in both classes. So I feel good about that. And also got me sort of connected with folks in the computer science departments, which was also important to me. And then, yeah, I was co-president of the Venture Capital Club and you know, vice president of the Tech Club. Having come from venture investing and you know, being reasonably sure that I was going to probably go back to it, you know, being part of the Venture Capital Club made a ton of sense. And then in the Tech Club for kind of similar reasons. The Venture Capital Club, I'll mention, was just nice because you know, we bring in these venture investors to speak on campus. And naturally being the president and co-president of the club means that you get to meet all of these people, even if you weren't involved in the actually booking them and getting them to come to campus. And so you end up being kind of like the hub 
from like a networking perspective between the Brentford community and the Stanford's business school, which is really nice and really helped to kind of expand my network among venture investors. So, you know, both were really positive experiences. Yeah. To your earlier answer about taking the two ML classes, computer vision and NLP, do you recall like what, what kind of projects that you work on in those classes? So for the NLP class, we, me and my project partner, who was the only other MBA in class, and he used to work at Google as an ML engineer. So he actually has a pretty strong experience, but we were trying to apply reinforcement learning to the natural language context. Yeah. I would say we were like semi-successful reinforcement learning is like notoriously finicky, like hard to make work. We did some experiments to try and see if we could improve upon like a baseline LSTM model. And had like a little bit of success, but I wouldn't say it was like a resounding success. And then the computer vision class, the project we wanted to do was around, originally we had an idea around like, we apply computer vision to, I've been a big video game guy my entire life. And if you could like apply it to, like take a screenshot from a game and pull game relevant information out of that screenshot to then do some interesting things with. And we wanted to do that. And the guy advised that that was like too trivial or that wasn't like, that wasn't that interesting or something. I forget that the, the TA of the class was kind of, uh, anyways, <laughs> he didn't like that idea. And so then I think we switched to, um, there was something around like convolutional nets. And basically it was like, you know, what comparing like convolutions to like the attention mechanism within like transformers, like what's like the smallest version of each of those mechanisms that you can get to be like reasonably performant mm-hmm. on like some data and like basically trying to come to a viewpoint on like was attention or like convolutions like a better primitive almost like was that like which, which was like a better way of processing like visual data at like the most basic level and we didn't come to a specific conclusion there but that was what we were exploring yeah for sure and i think it's really unique that you have this experience programming coding up deep neural networks because right now you just feel like looking at investment in an ML company and having that sort of skin in the game of like actually do that before allows you to have much better purview of whether the technology is resulting or not. Yeah. And then to your other point about being the president of Venture Club and the opportunity to build up your network within the VC community, right? Can you illustrate a bit more on like the venture ecosystem within Stanford, especially for us outside of curious to hear like type of events or communities that stuff was just be fostered to connect student entrepreneurs with VC firms. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Stanford is like classically the sort of meme. There's VCs walking around campus, like prowling for like the next Facebook or something. I think that's true to some extent, but I think, and I think that's a big attraction for why people want to go to the business school there because the perception is that it's going to be this launch pad to then get in, to break into venture investing. Um, I would say it's like not so simple <laughs> as people find when they actually arrive on campus. It's like every other eager Sanford MBA also wants to go get into venture. And these VCs get inundated with emailed and cold outreach from Sanford students who want to get into venture investing. And so it's actually a little tricky to get their attention. And so a big purpose of the uh, Venture Capital Club is to just sort of serve as a conduit between the students and the VCs and get their attention. And like the basic value prop is like, rather than like responding to 30 cold reach outs from Stanford business school students, like 
just come to a classroom and talk to 30 of them and just, you know, you know basically just batch process, I guess, to use a data analogy. And so it's, it's more efficient for the VCs. And I think the students get a lot out of it too. You know, because we speak for the school to some extent, the typical VC is more likely to agree to do that than like if a random student just reaches out to them. That was a big part of, you know, our reason to exist, so to speak. And then we try and foster, you know, some connectivity as well via like events that we would hold. Like there's this annual, I forget the name of it, basically this annual mixer uh, between like the venture capital club and like the Bay Area venture community broadly. And you bring a bunch of VCs on campus for like an evening of hors d'oeuvres and drinks and whatnot, and people can chit chat and, you know, hopefully land a business card or two to date myself, but those are some of the things that, that we would do. Yeah, really to like foster that serendipity between student and, and, and potential VCs. Also, uh, during business school, you spent some time working as a product manager at Confluent. And then I believe you conduct some independent research work on some of the trends in developer productivity by interviewing with founders and executives of emerging software startup. Can you share a bit about some of the key learnings from these initiatives? Yeah. So, you know, Confluent was a company that I'd been hearing about for a while, given I had been focused on, you know, data infrastructure as one of my areas, you know, back when I was at Iconic. And so I, I knew about the company and I knew that they were doing well. I was very much a novice when it came to streaming and streaming infrastructure, real-time infrastructure, but was able to get introduced to the product team there. You know, I think I impressed them given I was I was an MBA student, but I actually knew what I was talking about. And so I think they're just shocked that I could even hang with them as far as understanding like Tomska and topics and brokers and distributed systems and whatnot. And so I was able to kind of get the job there. I had an amazing time. They were like, it was very early days on the product team there. They had been a very engineering driven organization up until that point. And they had started a product team. There was more work to go around than they had been knew what to do with. And so I got a great experience first time PM and a lot more responsibility than you would normally get as a first time product manager. And what was nice was that my sort of skill sets that marries both being like relatively business oriented, but also relatively technical was pretty valuable there because there's a lot of people who were just technical and there are a lot of people who were just commercially oriented, but there were a few people who could kind of hang with both. And so I was sort of like a liaison between you know, those different parts of the organization, which was really cool. I think a key learning for me was like, frankly, the networking that you can do in the operational context when you're actually working with these people is so much better than in the more transactional investing context where you just meet people around doing deals or not. Like, even I wasn't at Confluent for that long, like the network that I was able to build in just like a short time there was pretty amazing. And, you know, arguably higher quality, again, because you've actually worked with these people and you actually have been in the trenches with them versus like just being on like, you know, Zooms and and phone calls for getting, you know, a transaction done. That was that. And then as I was coming out of business school, you know, towards the end, did this uh, independent research project with a classmate of mine on developer productivity, which is a topic I've been obsessed with for a long time when you're a young MBA student. That Stanford email address can definitely open doors. And so, you know, would reached out to a bunch of founders, you know, product execs and other folks at various developer or data scientist centric companies and interviewed them about some of the trends that they were seeing, what was interesting in their business, what was hard, what was easy, what were their top priorities, you know, et cetera. And then 
kind of synthesized all those learnings into three articles that we published. This was in 2020, summer of 2020. That all did really, really well. So that was a really fun experience. And in fact, the learnings from that are, are in the article. So if you want to learn what I learned, you can go you can go check them out on my, my website. But Absolutely. And we'll revisit more of this by about streaming infrastructure and that productivity uh, a little bit uh, later on in our conversation. Uh, let's quickly sort of continue the thread of your career. Since July 2020, you have been a partner at Lastbit Venture, mm-hmm. investing in early stage software startup, enhancing the productivity of technical knowledge workers. What about Lightspeed Investment Manifesto that attracted you to join the firm? So I had known about Lightspeed for a long time, in part because the enterprise team here had backed a lot of really interesting companies in the dev tools and infrastructure space over the years. And the firm had made a lot of money investing in these companies over the years. And so... As someone who is very obsessed with this part of the, the software stack, it seemed like a very much a natural fit for someone like me. And I could come here and focus exclusively on you know, those sorts of things where the firm had also had a lot of strength. And then the firm is also, I would say, very first principles oriented in terms of our thinking and how we make investments, which was also very aligned with my personality and how I like to think about things. And so it was a, it was a great you know, fit from that perspective. And then lastly, it was a firm that had historically been an early stage firm. We, we are now multi-stage, but like historically, like we started as an early stage firm and has a lot of that DNA in the building. And I was at a point where I wanted to transition to earlier stage investing and learn that side of things. And so being at a firm that has been doing that you know, since the beginning and has a lot of expertise around you know, what does a good company look like at the early stage was really important for my kind of learning development. So those are some of the things that attracted me to, to Lightspeed. Yeah, so it's really about the track record of the firm investing in some of the successful enterprise exit, and then the personality, working culture that fits with your own style. And then lastly, is the focus on early stage, which is at this point the main reason that attracting you towards that side of the investment cap table, right? Um, yes. Yeah, that actually lends itself super well to my next question. And this is actually talking about your investing journey. So you work in growth stage at Iconic and now you work in early stage at Lightspeed, right? So out of curiosity, as a new early stage investor at the firm, how did you prove your value upfront in potential deals and start forming your investment thesis? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, part of the rationale for going to earlier stage was that it would be an opportunity for me to flex my product and the technical sense a lot more. Those skills were also valuable at the growth stage. I'd say they're less important than other things. And at the early stage, you know, there's a lot of product risk, there's a lot of technical risk, and being able to understand that side of things is very important. In addition to being able to kind of endear yourself with these technical founders, and you know, the best one of the best ways to a technical person's heart is through you know nerding out about technology. And so early on, it was exactly that. It's just like showing up to a meeting and being able to say credibly that like, I've actually used your product. Like I've actually messed around with it. I, you know, I did pip install a couple of weeks ago and checked it out or I did NPM or whatever. And, and so it's that sort of thing, you know, being able to having like a lot of familiarity with a lot of the concepts, even though I've never worked as a software engineer, I've never been paid for my code, as I say, you know, being able to kind of talk the talk that uh, a typical developer would definitely made me kind of stand out. And then actually having relevant experience, you know, having worked at Confluent, you know, we ended up making a couple of investments in real-time infrastructure, you know, here, folks like Red Panda, folks like Materialize and others. And so 
you know, having that background has enabled me to be pretty helpful to those companies. And so it all kind of goes back to like what my core passions are, which is technology and helping make the lives of developers easier and just kind of like demonstrating that. Yeah. Basically like displaying your nerdiness in technology, yes. that product capacity, and then being able to jam on this conversation, intellectual conversation with early stage founders. Um, yeah. That you understand what they're talking about, understand what, what their product is about. So let's investigate a couple of your most impactful investments at last bit. In the domain of developer tooling, you invest in the seed round of Ponder and Voxel Data. What are some of the key factors that uh, trigger you to make these investments? Yeah, so if I were to collate all of the code that I've written over the course of my life, the vast majority of it has been in the kind of data science in analytics context. I'm a big Python nerd. I'm a big data science nerd. I love doing sort of ad hoc analyses and Jupyter notebooks and what have you. And I really like Python as a language. I think it has a lot of advantages versus other languages, but also carries some disadvantages. And a big part of the reason why a company like Databricks exists is to help solve some of those disadvantages of Python when you're trying to do large-scale analytics or machine learning in a distributed context. And a lot of the rationale for our investments in Ponder and Voltron Data are to give people an alternative to shipping the workloads off to Databricks and Spark. You know, Ponder, for example, helps you scale up Python-based uh, analytics in something called Modin, which is a data frame that kind of sits on top of something called Pandas, which is like the most used uh, data frame to the Python ecosystem. It's an extremely popular library but it doesn't scale super well to massive data sets that you know, don't fit in memory. And so Ponder helps you do that, but keeps it within the Python ecosystem. So you no longer have to worry about shipping code off the Databricks. You no longer have to worry about going and learning Spark, which you may or may not want to go learn or go learn Scala or something. None of that is necessary if you have something like Ponder. And then Voltron data is similarly trying to give folks an alternative to some of these other big data analytics platforms by enabling kind of heterogeneous programming languages to do analytics and heterogeneous hardware. And so whatever language is your lingua franca, whether it's Python or C++ or Rust or what have you, providing a common interface to speak to those languages and then be able to deploy the workloads of those languages on any underlying infrastructure, whether it's CPUs, GPUs, you know, FPGAs, um, and any other kind of more exotic thing that comes down the line. The, the vision of Ultron is to provide a system that enables anybody to do any kind of analytics on any kind of system. And so very kind of similar thesis of meeting folks where they are in their analytics journeys. So those are the factors that kind of drive, you know, those two investments. I see. The technology capabilities and how that sort of resonates with your own experience doing data analysis, data science before, right? And both of these two companies come from open source projects, right? Like Ponder got a Lux and Modern and Watch your data at Apache Arrow, which is super popular. I'm curious that besides the product, was there anything about the community aspect as well as, as the founder themselves, a partner in virtual and that uh, that also draw you? Yeah, I mean, the founders in all these cases are just brilliant individuals. In the case of Ponder, uh, you know, folks that came out of you know, UC Berkeley's PhD program and the Rise Lab specifically there. In the case of Voltron Data, you know, a CEO is someone who came out of NVIDIA, which is a company I've admired for a very long time. And I'm a big GPU nerd. So and he's just sort of a brilliant guy. And then his co-founder, 
funnily enough, is you know Wes McKinney, who's a creator of Pandas, which is the thing that Ponder is trying to make scalable. So it's just kind of fun that I'm involved in both companies, but really just like brilliant founding teams, I think is the biggest similarity there. In addition to like technology being really good. And the communities, both cases are just exploding. You look at Modin downloads over time, it's just up and to the right. And then you look at Apache Arrow downloads across different languages that they support. It's just just totally exploded over the past few years. And so that's really exciting to us as open source investors. You see that kind of traction and, and love in the community. So that played a big role in us getting excited about these companies. Yeah, thanks for sharing some of those factors that you used to make such decision. Moving on into the domain of real-time data infrastructure, you invest in Red Panda and Materialize. What about the products and the teams of these two companies that resonate with you? Yeah. So Yon teams, again, just like brilliant founders and brilliant, like very, very technical founders. Alex at Red Panda is just one of the most brilliant high energy engineers that I've ever seen. He wrote this thing in the initial version of it, he wrote entirely himself. And it's like shocking how performant it is for being basically written by one person. You know, it now has many hands on it, but like initially it was just his code. It was pretty, pretty good. And then, you know, Arjun and Frank at Materialize are both just brilliant Uh, engineers and almost like scientists, frankly, around sort of like, how do you make these big data systems work at scale um, and make your know, real-time infrastructure a viable alternative to like batch-based processing. And so sorry, it always starts there, brilliant founding teams. And then the products, you know, having come from Confluent, I was very turned on to these opportunities around streaming data and, and real-time infrastructure. In the case of Red Panda, They were actually, one of their core features was something that I had worked on when I was at Confluent, which was like getting rid of Zookeeper, which is this data infrastructure. It's an open source technology that's in a lot of data infrastructure systems. It helps you manage distributed systems, but it's, it's its own system, its own set of nodes that you spin up when you're running these other products. And there's, I won't get into too much detail, but there's a lot of problems that can come up when you have to run two distributed systems together. And most folks would just prefer to, to run one. And Kafka, until very recently, is sort of dependent on Zookeeper. It's it's being slowly removed, but it's slow process. It's something that I worked on for Red Panda from the start. Has never had a dependency on, on Zookeeper. It uses something else called Raft, a Raft algorithm. And so that was really exciting and attractive to me as someone who's very concerned about like developer experience. Red Panda has an amazing developer experience, and then Materialize. We have a product at Confluent called KSQL DB, which is a very sort of analogous product. And I saw over time the belief that Confluent has in that product and how much they've invested in this opportunity around like a real-time database. And so, you know, Materialize made a lot of sense in that context as like an you know, independent company offering, you know, a real-time database that could work with you know, any number of streaming technologies. Those are some of the things that really resonated with me. Yeah, the founding team as well as the prowess of the product, right? Just got to follow up on that question a little bit. You wrote this really nice article on Crunchbase talking about real-time data infrastructure a couple of months ago. And can you share a little bit about sort of the market size of real-time data infrastructure for maybe the next few years? Yeah, and I don't have like exact numbers for market size, but just in terms of like how to think about it, there's this transition that is ongoing from like old school, like batch data systems where you sort of process all the data in one big bang, like once a day or once in a while, um, that takes, you know, some amount of time and leads to delays in terms of freshness of the data. 
there's always some delay between whatever today is and whatever date the data is as of. And in the past, real time has just not been technically feasible due to the way that these systems have been kind of architected. And then once it, and slowly it became feasible, but to build one of these systems involved like stringing together a bunch of different independent technologies that really only the most sophisticated organizations like an Uber or a Netflix or something could actually do. And so one of the, the most exciting things about this space is that there's now a set of tools that have really abstracted a lot of this underlying complexity and you no longer need to be, you know, some amazing data engineer to implement this stuff. You know, the bar is being slowly kind of lowered year by year and more and more people are getting access to real-time infrastructure. So I think that's like one way of looking at the market in terms of the technology side of it. And then I think the use and the demand side, the use cases have grown a ton over time. More and more organizations are finding reasons to want to leverage real-time data. It's always been interesting in the context of like highly transactional, high velocity, like consumer companies, you know, marketplaces and e-commerce and what have you. But you're starting to see more and more use cases within B2B as well, especially financial services. Like all of these crypto exchanges are using streaming in various ways. It's just like one example. And so that's, I think, leading to a lot of growth in this overall space. And it's, it's still early days. Like most organizations, frankly, do not have a real-time use case right now, but they increasingly do. And so our rationale has been, like, let's get ahead of this curve and invest in some foundational technologies within the space. And so as so far as working out. Yeah, I'm excited to see more and more, more adoption of real-time data and ML technologies in more organizations within the upcoming years, as well as the technologies tooling that you know have fulfilled those needs. Reflecting on some of your experience sourcing deals and being a broad observer in many early-stage companies wide Lightspeed, what advice have you given your portfolio companies in hiring decision and navigating growth strategy? You know, as far as hiring, you know, generally our mentality is like keep the bar very high. Right? And then I would add one of the things that all of our companies run into is folks who have alternative offers at like big tech companies. And as a result, have, let's say, very high expectations in terms of compensation than what startup, the typical startup is able to provide. And that's oftentimes like frustrating for founders because you know, they have someone who they would otherwise be really excited about, but that person could always go work at Google or Microsoft or Amazon or what have you. And as like a backstop. And so I oftentimes tell our founders, like, frankly, if someone's comparing you to those options, maybe they're just not the best fit because they, you know, the fact that that person would consider working at big tech instead of like a high side, high growth startup, maybe says more about them. And and maybe we shouldn't be competing for those people at the end of the day. Maybe they're just looking for something different or optimizing for different things. So we shouldn't be that frustrated about losing you know, those kinds of candidates for those sorts of reasons. And then in terms of navigating growth strategy, in the past, I've been a big nerd around like unit economics. You know, what's the profitability of the marginal dollar of revenue that we acquire? And you know, early stage companies sometimes don't have a great handle on what that looks like uh, for them. You know, growth stage companies generally, they have a better handle on it, but even then there's a lot of confusion and people don't always know, you know, how profitable their business actually is. And so um, I'm always kind of harping on that. It's a key point because I focus on a lot of developer centric companies, you know, developer relations has been a very big theme of mine. I am like the DevRel guy here at Lightspeed. I'm like encouraging all our companies to hire these folks 
as early as possible. Even like one of the first employees to be on the DevRel side is when you have a product to evangelize. So I think it's super important and it's become increasingly formalized as a field, but it's still kind of, it's still be a little wild, wild west, but I think companies that do that very well create a lot of like alpha as far as like developer centric investing goes. So I'm a big advocate of, of that. Yeah. And we, we talk about DevRel in a second. I just want to quickly highlight that, you know, you have written a few really great blog posts about this topic, recent blog posts talking about how hiring can be tougher after raising a big valuation. And then even one of your first blog posts on your website is about compile grow, right? And how you know, companies can find challenging to conceptualize and actually like being able to grow exponentially. And I'll be sure to include those two articles in the show notes for anyone who is interested in learning more about your perspective on this topic. And talking about some of your content for the rest of the conversation. So one thing I really enjoy about Namdi is, is that you open source a lot of your ideas, perspective on your website by writing a lot of popular essays that come by theory, data, and real-world relevance. And I want to highlight and talk throughout the rest of the interview on a few of those topics that you have continued to pull over time. In 2020, together with a partner, Cleo Smuro, you had written a three-part series on the major industry trends, top strategic priorities, and biggest challenges for software and infrastructure startup pushing the developer productivity frontier. So can you share a bit about some of the most important takeaways from that research? So this, this is a three-part series that I had mentioned earlier. You know, it was really fun to do, and folks were very eager to talk about their trials and tribulations of building a developer-centric company. I think in terms of like some of the most interesting learnings, this is obvious to some people, but just to drive the point home, like developers are increasingly the ones making decisions as far as what tooling their organizations adopt. If you're a Silicon Valley engineer, that makes a lot of sense to you. But like for less progressive companies, like the idea that the engineers are going to be deciding what they use is like a foreign idea, very foreign idea. Like most organizations are much more top down, not like some exec decides we're going to use this and then everybody is kind of forced to use it. But increasingly, that's not the case, even in those more old school organizations and developers basically are being given purview as far as like using best in class tooling using whatever kind of best, most kind of speaks to them, whatever makes them most productive, whatever makes the work most enjoyable. And so finding ways to appeal to developers as opposed to merely appealing to like execs and directors, I think is one big trend. DevRel is like a really, really big trend which you already talked about a little bit. But again, it's just, you know, it can be the differentiator between product that's just as good as another, but because it didn't take off within the community because you didn't endear yourself with the right personas out there. I just never end up taking off. And you see this a lot in open source. There's so many interesting open source products out there, but only a very small subset have actually taken off in a major way. I don't think it's necessarily because of the tech always. I think it's because of a lot of sort of social dynamics, which are under discussed. I think developers think that they're very kind of like almost like asocial, like they're just all the tech and the technology, but there's a lot of influencing going on within uh, developer tools and it's important to kind of figure out how to best take advantage of that kind of stuff. And then like, you know, just like the classics are growing pains of like, how do you scale up a company? You know, there are certain maybe particular difficulties that developer centric companies tend to run into. I think one that's worth highlighting is like, and I might write a blog post about this eventually, but it's sort of like the perils of seat based pricing and like, how do you build a big company if you don't charge that much on a per seat basis? And the issue is that 
people can always compare you to what they're paying on a per seat basis for GitHub or GitLab. And those platforms obviously provide a ton of value. And so if you're going to charge on a per seat basis too, but you're not providing as much value as those products, it's pretty hard to extract any more value out of customers, any more revenue out of customers than them. And so you know, how do you build a big business if you're charging only a couple of bucks per seat per developer or something? You end up needing to blend with a lot of developers, like some trivial share of all software developers in order to build a meaningful business that way. And I think a lot of companies are starting to run into those sort of scaling issues. So that's an interesting kind of thing that I've, my thoughts on that are evolving over time and maybe I'll, I'll write something, but yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to read a future essay on pricing strategy for enterprise software. I think that's a relevant topic for a lot of enterprise founders. And so just want to double click on your part about DevRel, right? So you've been quite vocal about the challenge of hiring developer advocates for dev-focused startups. From uh, talking with a lot of like companies in this space, what advice could you give to some of the startup thinking about scaling the uh, developer relations function? A couple of things. I think, you know, this role is extremely hard to hire for. So I advise founders to think about DevRel as not just like the people that you go hire to go do it for you, but just sort of like something that your entire organization is oriented towards, not just the people who have the title of like DevRel. And so that's one thing. I think content is a really big, nice way to kind of bootstrap yourself to DevRel impact, even without having a ton of those, these folks on staff. Content is really nice because it's, it's like a scalable asset. You write you do it once, you pay the fixed cost upfront once to write the thing, and then it can get some unlimited number of traffic, amount of traffic after that. And my experience has been that it sort of scales non-linearly. And so in other words, like more is more. So like if you put out more and more of these pieces of content, there's sort of like a fat tail distribution of outcomes that can happen. And the majority of your pieces might not be do that well in terms of traffic, but every a small percentage of them will, and that'll make all the rest of them kind of worth it. Um, something will go viral, will hit the top, top of Hacker News, you know, what have you. And so it's definitely more is definitely more. And then like thinking about getting creative in terms of like, okay, we want to hire someone in DevRel. DevRel folks are really hard to hire. So how can we be creative about finding someone who could be a good fit? And like one example of this is just you know, almost every DevRel person is a former engineer. So you don't have to look at only current DevRel people. You can look at people who are currently engineers who might want to transition to DevRel or make it like some part of their daily work. And so looking at your current engineering team and saying like, well, how can we best leverage our current engineers to, to put out like DevRel content to do DevRel, I think is something that is oftentimes like underutilized by companies. And so that's another thing that I advise folks to do is they're kind of scaling out DevRel initially. Yeah, thanks for sharing all those very insightful, you know, takeaways and advice for companies who want to improve this function. Also, I came across this tweet that you put together maybe a few months ago. You said you are building a DevRel community at Lightspeed. You can share a little bit about that, you know, for folks who want to get involved. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time just like meeting with and reaching out to developer relations folks that come across on Twitter or YouTube or what have you, and just sort of building relationships with these folks. I think a lot of the reason why it's hard to hire DevRel folks is that you just don't know who's out there because there's a big selection bias or recency bias in that the DevRel people you're most likely to hear about are the ones who are most likely in demand because they're putting out a lot of content. They have big audiences, what have you. There's a long tail of developer relations folks who are maybe don't have as large of audiences, but could be perfectly good 
in your company. And so I focus a lot on like that sort of next tier folks and, and just sort of building relationships. And then periodically we have events here at Lightspeed where I bring together a bunch of founders and DevRel folks and just sort of like chat about best practices, what's worked, what hasn't worked, kind of making connections where appropriate. And, uh, and that, those have been very valuable. People have really enjoyed those. So I like it. It's like fun. I love DevRel folks. They're all, they're, a lot of them are very extroverted and nice and like love, love nerding out about stuff, which is my kind of people. So it's really fun and uh, want, want to do more of that this year for sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that in initiatives. Going back into developer productivity, in early 2021, you published a three-part series on the Dev Productivity Manifesto that introduced the Dev Productivity Flywheel, explained how more developers actually leads to lower productivity, and argues that we are living on the table $670 billion of software by not maximizing debt employment and debt productivity. Would you mind sort of unpacking the framework for thinking about debt productivity presented in this essay series? Yeah, happy to. And, you know, a lot of the ideas from this come from both my interest in developer tools and also my interest in economics. I spent a lot of time reading economics research when I'm not like investing or even when I am investing. And so this is sort of like marrying those two parts of my mind. But basically the developer activity flywheel is, is this idea that this sort of this virtuous cycle between, you know, creating more software and some subset of that software as developer productivity tool is those developer productivity tools make developers more productive. Developers working at higher productivity increases their demand for developers. And so more developers get hired. And then more developers working at higher levels of productivity leads to more software output. And then again, some of that software is developer productivity software. And so the loop kind of continues. And an important element of this is that I tend to emphasize productivity more than I emphasize bringing more developers into the world, although I am very much in favor of enabling more folks to become software developers. And the reason though is because of the second point that I talked about, which is that like applying more developers to the same problem doesn't always lead to solutions. There's sort of a diminishing returns as far as like the number of developers that you can point at a given project or whatever. And before you start to run into just sort of classic scaling issues associated with really any kind of knowledge work, but especially software development work. The, the work can only be divided so many ways. There's like a basic indivisible unit of work that, you know, doubling the team is not going to, it can only be done by one person. So doubling the team doesn't help you solve it any faster. And so I think it's, I think it's super important to not necessarily just use like, not just necessarily throw more bodies at the problem. And there's also like diseconomy scale that you run into and like complexity issues that you run into when you start building really large, software development teams and really large and complex software systems. And then the, and then the, another thing that people don't realize is that uh, a lot drop out of software development after a couple of years, there's like a big leaky bucket issue in software development, which would suggest that merely expanding the number of developers out there and or number of developers entering the profession isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. If so many of them are going to turn out in the first place, there's a longer set of reasons for why that's the case. And then lastly, you know, if you take what we could be doing in terms of developer productivity that we aren't currently doing today, and then you take, you know, all the people that we could have as software developers who are not yet software developers today, and you say like, what if, what if we had more developers working at higher productivity? There's some back of the develop math that you could do that would suggest that there's something on the order of 700 billion of software basically that isn't getting produced, you know, annually 
that we could be producing if we were trying to optimize on these different uh, dimensions. And so it sounds like a big number to me and a problem worth focusing on. And so that's some of the kind of intellectual rationale behind why I'm so focused on this space. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And I think you also have given a presentation at the GitLab commit last year talking about this manifesto, right? And I'm, I'm very impressed on how you said you read economics paper and sort of apply that some of the mental models from the economist thinking into the software domain, right? Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm curious, what's been the reception of like the, the people who read this piece and reach out to you? A lot of nodding heads and people sort of read it and kind of immediately you know, resonate with some of the issues that I identify. I think especially the idea that like just more developers isn't necessarily the solution. I think a lot of people kind of very much understand, especially anyone who's been involved in large software projects, they kind of understand it in their bones mm-hmm. that, you know, more cooks in the kitchen doesn't necessarily lead to more food being produced. And so it really resonates with people who have like been in software development. You know, it, it resonates with anybody who has an economics background. I think they, really like nerding out about this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, it's nice other investors, you know, we all have our like investment theses. And so it's interesting to like compare and contrast, you know, how people think about different areas. And so a lot of uh, my investor friends have enjoyed it as well. So yeah, the reception has been really good. And, um, you know, I'd love to put out another kind of piece like this. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I've had many hours on this, so like, I don't know if I have the energy for it, but it, it, maybe there'll be a part two at some point. Yeah, fabulous. So another topic that I'm very excited to dig into is sort of your obsession with flat tail distribution. So you have written a variety of essay about the flat tail nature of high growth startup, such as why VCs don't index invest, why SaaS monetization is concentrated on the tails, and why product market fits get harder to achieve the longer you search for it. So my question is twofold. First, how did you become interested in this topic in the first place? And second, what are the implications of the fat tail distribution in enterprise software that you want to explore? Yeah, so the, my interest in the topic was really sparked by reading like, all of Nassim Taleb's books, you know, Fooled by Randomness, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, and uh, Skin in the Game. And he talks a lot about fat tails and how they really sort of turn your intuition, your natural intuition, Ted. And they're everywhere. They're really the norm rather than the exception. And especially in technology. And, and so since you see it so often, I feel like it was worthwhile kind of taking a more rigorous view of some of these dynamics that people kind of have seen, but have not necessarily had the tools or mental models to understand and explore. And it's been really fun to do. So that's how I got interested in the topic. And you mentioned a couple of different ways that it, it comes up. The distribution of returns in venture is very fat tail, where people say like a power law distribution you know, SaaS monetization tends to be very fat-tailed to your customer base. And then, you know, product market fit, which is, you could sort of say is a marker of how well your product fits the market and company performance, which is a derivative of how well your product fits the market. It tends to be that like a small improvement in product market fit can vastly improve business performance. And so it's as if business performance is fat-tailed relative to product market fit. And that has like certain implications. And so the other implications that are maybe worth exploring, I mean, some of them are around taking this seriously, this idea that like the average is a very misleading concept when you're dealing with fat tails. And like a lot of folks talk about like the per customer, we earn this much in revenue. And it's like, well, that's not actually a meaningful metric when the underlying distribution is fat tailed and sort of exploring what the implications are 
for like understanding unit economics, for modeling out the revenue of a software company, for understanding like the risks, you know, customer concentration risks that a software company faces. You know, these are some of the things that I, I kind of want to continue exploring, but uh, it's been a, been a really interesting area so far. Yeah, absolutely. I personally, you know, big fan of Sintalab as well. I read most of his books. So it's very cool like, to hear that you be able to, again, borrowing that mental models from the economics part of you and then, you know, translate that neatly into the context of, you know, enterprise software. And then across different use cases from investing to monetization to product. Yeah. And really to that point about, you know, the average that you just mentioned in the answer, in early 2022, you wrote this essay introducing a new and improved SaaS metric called weighted ACV, which is the weight of the revenue that a customer represents and tell founders what to look if they want to best understand the revenue of their businesses. From an investor perspective, how does this metric factor into your evaluation of potential investment? Yeah, it's a really fun one because it's not every day that you can sort of come up with a new SaaS metric. It feels like most things have been already explored, but I felt like this was um, relatively uncharted territory. The easiest way to think about weighted ACV is like the difference between being the, at the geometric center of an object versus its center of mass or center of gravity, which can be you know different than that. And if you're kind of trying to do physics on its object, what you really care about is its center of gravity, not its uh, geometric center. And so similarly with a company, if you're trying to kind of to do physics on a company, I guess if you're trying to model a company and its evolution going forward, you really want to focus on its center of gravity, or in this case, it's basically its center of revenue, not like just its average revenue. And so that means focusing on like, where is the revenue actually coming from in this business? Well, for most businesses, it's coming from a small subset of customers and being able to come up with a metric that gives you some sense of where does the average dollar of revenue come from? What size of customers does that average dollar typically come from? Is a very useful metric because it tells you where the risk is in the business. It tells you who's really buttering your bread, so to speak. It tells you who you should be really focused on from a potential expansion standpoint, and, you know, and so on. And it, it can help in certain cases. It can make the company look a lot better than it would otherwise if you were if you were just to look at its average monetization. And like, let's say they have a bunch of free users or very low paying users, but then that small number of users that are actually you know meaningful and of, of enterprise scale. If you were just to look at the average, you might think like, oh, this is this company doesn't monetize very well. Their average revenue per customer is pretty low. But if you look at the weighted ACV, you know, it might be the case that the average dollar of revenue is coming from like a 100K, 200K customer, in which case, like, you know, that's a pretty strong kind of monetization. And so it, this, it, I think it's a metric that folks should really start including within their sort of framework for how they think about a software company. And, and, it should, and it should be used in conjunction with like the regular average, like the simple average. It's not, it's not like a replacement. It's meant to be used in combination with it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. In that essay that you're introducing with ACV, towards the end of that, you said that the main disadvantage of revenue waiting is that it requires knowing the revenue or contract value of each and every customer. Because of that, an outsider cannot calculate the metric. It must be reported by the company. So like when you talk with potential companies and even with your portfolio companies, do you like require them to report with ACV? Is that optional? Yeah, so many of the companies I work with are so early that it's like, you know, they don't have that many customers to begin with. So I haven't made it like required reporting. I do have one portfolio company that does report it, but it's still early days and getting folks to adopt this metric. But I think once you are at a certain point where you're like reliably landing new revenue every quarter and new customers, 
you're trying to kind of understand the distribution of all that. I think that's where this metric starts to really become, become valuable. And so if you're a growth stage company, I think you should definitely be you know, calculating this and reporting it. Yeah, gotcha. Finally, you have been selected previously for Forbes 30 under 30 venture capital and venture capital is a 40 under 40 list. What does this recognition mean to you as an investor on a mission to increase total software output by investing in technical tools for technical people? Yeah, I mean, these various forms of recognition are a little bit like vanity metrics. And I sometimes question how valuable they are, but I actually think of it more as like recognition of past behavior. And it's just like a question of like, you've done enough to earn this this sort of credit. And if you do, then you you should get it. But, you know, it's not a predictor necessarily of future. Past performance is not a predictor of future performance. And I'm always a little bit wary because, uh, as Nassim Talib says, a lot of times these these awards are given out like at the peak of that person's career. And so I worry that I've already peaked and it's all downhill from here. But more seriously, like the point is just like, it's nice to be able to just point to something that says like, hey, I'm a competent, thoughtful investor who's made good bets in the past and will hopefully make good bets in the future. And it's just a way to sort of open doors and provide a little bit of extra credibility as I'm going out and like, you know, trying to win these deals and the opportunity to work with these founders. And, you know, if I do that enough times, then I will have accomplished my mission of helping sort of increase total software output. And so I think about it in those terms, recognition and sort of credibility. Yeah. Recognition, you could credibility. And just to the part about John, so you worry that you're already in the peak of your career. So I'm curious, like, how do you maintain the consistency of adding value to people and making good bets? You know, what's your, like, your routine, your day-to-day so that you're being able to continuously operate at a high level? Well, I don't sleep enough. So <laughs> let's sacrifice that for some of these other things. But yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't changed that much over the years. It's basically, you know, some amount of time meeting exceptional founders, time spent you know, diligencing, trying to understand their business or their product or what have you. And then some amount of time spending time with my portfolio companies and trying to be helpful to them in every way possible. And then on top of all that, some amount of time spent just nerding out and just do it going where my nose naturally takes me, you know, learning new programming languages, exploring some new library or package that I heard about, you know, spending time on Hacker News and Reddit and whatnot, just trying to like hang out where developers hang out to just stay at the forefront of things. That's a big element of it. And it's important because this industry is in, in software development specifically changes so frequently, so quickly. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to keep my sort of skills to date, so to speak, and knowledge. So, yeah, staying to the edge, right? And do you like systematically design your time, so you like, you know, to certain activities? Because I feel like these are so completely different trajectory tasks that you have to operate. Or are you more like optimistic in terms of, you know, how you spend your time? I'm not like super organized about it because I do have a natural interest in this stuff. I kind of just, as I feel like it, I do it. And I feel like it often enough that it gets, it gets done often enough, but I could probably afford to be a bit more organized, but it's worked out so far. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So now I'm this for a conversation. I want to round out our conversation with three rapid fire questions and you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the venture capital community whose work you admire. Yeah, I'm always bad naming names off the top of my head, but I'll give you the two that immediately come to mind. You know, one is this guy, and I'll purposely exclude anybody that I work with at Lightspeed, not to be biased. You know, one is this guy, Mike Volpe at Dex Ventures, who is the lead investor in a lot of interesting companies, was the lead investor in Confluent as, as one example, but a number of other kind of developer-centric companies. 
um, over the years, just like a really good investor in that domain, someone I look up to and admire. Another person who is in a very different part of the industry is uh, Keith Raboy, who uh, has a pretty strong Twitter personality and among other things, uh, but he's like really an independent thinker and like isn't afraid to be contrarian and is often right about stuff. And being contrarian and right is really hard to do consistently. And he's, he's managed to do it in a lot of areas. So he's someone I really admire for his overall sort of attitude of thinking for himself and going after what he thinks is right. So I would say those two. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate better foresight. Yeah, so I'm going to cheat and go with the Inserto, which is technically four or five books, but this is the set of books that Nassim Taleb has written over the years. And if anything, it's the, the advice of the book is don't try and forecast too much that, you know, foresight is overrated and that you should really be focused on just like setting yourself up in such a way that irrespective of how things transpire, you end up with as much upside as possible and as little downside as possible. And so focusing more on that than trying to predict the future, so to speak, which is a really tough exercise. So I've really taken that to heart and would recommend everything he's written. Lovely. And finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage VCs on Twitter. What could you tweet about? You know, I think I'd basically say like, hey, none of us know what we're talking about. So just think for yourself. You're probably better off <laughs> for yourself than trying to worry than worrying too much about what other VCs think, what other VCs are doing. I think we're all very, very social, probably overly social creatures who are too worried about what the rest of the herd is doing. Just do what you think is right. March to the beat of your own drummer and follow your nose. As I say pretty often, just, just follow your intuitions and your nose. So, Yeah, like cultivating that sort of independent thinking and resisting mimetic desire, right? So, Bilan, I think that's a great way to end a conversation. Namdi, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your child growing up in Los Angeles, some of your early engagement with building computers and coding up website, or time at jail studying economics and intern as an investment banker transition into venture capital investing in early high growth technology company at Iconic Capital, your MBA degree at Stanford while studying CS classes and working at companies like Confluent, and your current journey with Lightspeed Ventures investing early stage software startup, enhancing the productivity of technical knowledge and workers. I'll be sure to include all the relevant essays that we talk about today in the show notes, so listeners can have a chance to follow up and subscribe to your thinking on some of the latest topic ranging from that productivity to effective distribution enterprise software but yeah i really enjoyed and i hope you have a fantastic rest of your day thank you james appreciate it this is fun well that's the wrap for another episode of datacast hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today you can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.